KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. There has been a lot of focus recently on working to reduce the number of people incarcerated in the U.S. Now, there's been progress on that front, but that progress is not equal. In Pennsylvania, the numbers for men have gone down, but the number of women incarcerated continues to increase. We wanted to talk about this, find out the why, and also what can be done to address it. Our guest is Dr. Jill McCorkle. She is a professor of sociology and criminology at Villanova University. She is also the founder and the executive director of the Philadelphia Justice Project for Women and Girls. So to start, I just kind of want to set the table for this discussion. And am I, cor- am I correct that the number of women incarcerated in the state of Pennsylvania has gone up, say, over the last decade, but that is at the same time the overall number of people incarcerated in the state has gone down. Is that correct? That's correct. So Pennsylvania has managed to reduce the size of its overall prison population, but the reduction in the overall population is driven entirely by reductions in the number of men that are sent to prison. The number of women who have been sent to prison has continued to increase. The overall decrease. Let's just start with that. What's behind that? That that can't just be an accident. That's right. The overall decrease reflects really a concerted effort and in this sense, on, on, from people on both sides of the aisle, it's one of the few things these days that Americans agree on, that mass incarceration is a problem, that we've got to reduce the size of the prison population. And, and so you see a concerted effort to uh, you know, sort of speed up opportunities or increase opportunities for parole, probation, to find opportunities to divert people out of prison, people who don't need to be there, perhaps they can, you know, sort of pay off their sentence in other ways. And so that's that's what's driven the reduction in the overall size of the prison population. What's happened is that women have been left out of those progressive reforms. Women don't often end up in prison for the same reasons that men do. And so there's been a failure to identify really the gender-specific reasons that are propelling women into the system in the first place, and then also sort of gender-specific needs to increase the number of women that are getting out and and expanding the number of opportunities for women to get out. So give me the why there. Why are we seeing more women? What are and what are the, the crimes or the reasons that they are incarcerated and how does it differ from men? That's a great question. So first of all, you know, the scope of women's incarceration and scope of women's crime hasn't, women's crimes haven't changed all that much over the last three, four decades. So women are, women's crimes tend to be less serious, less violent, less frequent than men's. What we've seen over the last couple of decades is that women are um, represented in drug offenses at roughly similar rates as they were in the 1980s, what changed fundamentally there is mandatory minimum sentences. And mandatory minimums meant that women were not able to benefit from judicial discretion in the way that they had prior to the war on drugs. So one of the the most important contributors to this explosion in the number of women in prison really is, is an artifact of sentencing policy. Women had often benefited uh, from judicial discretion because women are 
overwhelmingly the primary caretakers of kids under the age of 18. And uh, judges have been loath to sentence women to prison. But because of those mandatory minimums, which are based on the volume of a drug that is transacted, transacted, not your discrete role in a drug offense. So if you have anything to do with a drug offense, your sentence is dictated entirely by the weight of the drugs. And, and judges really don't have um, any wiggle room there. So that's part of what's happening. And, you know, really that the sort of uh, framework of women's crime hasn't changed. Women haven't over the last two decades somehow become more violent than men. The second part of women's crimes is that very often uh, women are uh, charged as accomplices or co-conspirators to crimes that men are committing. And very often these are men that are um, relatives or men that women are in relationships with. And um, women typically in those crimes play a pretty modest, like minor role. Uh, They tend not to be trigger people. They tend not to be the sort of primary drivers in that offense. But at the same time, for a variety of reasons, either out of loyalty or out of fear, they often don't cooperate with police and prosecutors. And what that has meant is uh, a sort of malicious, malicious kinds of prosecutions where they're charged uh, with conspiracy or something called accomplice liability in Pennsylvania, where they end up serving very similar, if not the same sentences uh, to men. And so that's, that's been a big problem that has been under thematized in what's been happening with women's incarceration rates. You talk about why we're seeing the women incarcerated and you talked earlier about the overall push to move things along quicker, find other avenues for people to, to, you know, pay off their sentence or whatever. Why had, does not, not seem to have translated to fewer women. Why are these things being able to be utilized for the male population and not female? It's a great question. And really two things that you need to have in order to qualify either for a diversion program, which prevents you from going to prison in the first place, or parole or any kind of uh, sentence reduction. Those two things are housing and a job. And almost exclusively efforts to expand community-based housing programs, as well as efforts to expand employment opportunities um, job training programs, uh, resume preparation, interview skills, that has been directed almost exclusively to men. And so women, when they are uh, up for sentencing or before you know, uh, the Board of uh, Pardons or, or the Parole Board, very often haven't secured housing simply because there aren't those housing resources available to women. And then even when they are There's a lot of restrictions on being able to bring children into those housing programs uh, with you. And so for a lot of women, it's just a non-starter if they can't uh, get into the program with their children. Is this something that the people making the laws and making the rules feature or bug, I guess? Is this something that the people, they don't, it's not quite understood by the people putting the, the things together uh, that there are, there would be these certain circumstances that would apply to women and, and not to men. Is that kind of what we're seeing here? Yeah, I, I think it's kind of a, a bug in the framework in that historically women have always been less than 10% of the prison population in any state. Sometimes it's been, you know, about 4%. And I think what hasn't happened is that policymakers haven't sort of caught up to the 
realities of women's incarceration, that when women are, are 10% of a, of a small prison population, they can be absorbed, when they come out, they can be absorbed into family networks, social networks. But when we're talking about a much larger prison population and, and between two and 3,000 women, those support networks just can't absorb uh, the number of women that have you know, significant needs around housing, childcare, and employment. And so I, I just think that policymakers, you know, prisons have been economies of scale. Um, so typically, you know, the general operating budget for the DOC, the majority of that is really going into resources uh, for men, uh, but it's creating uh, really significant problems for women that, that have pronounced ripple effects on down the line, especially because women are disproportionately primary caregivers to kids. Yeah, to that point, I mean, there are ripple effects with any person that is incarcerated, but specifically with women, because they are the vast primary caregivers, you're not only talking about that life, you're talking about children's lives. And uh, these ripple effects can last a lifetime, not just for the person involved, but for their kids and then their kids' kids. I mean, when you really take the 30,000 foot view, this is really alarming, the the lives it can alter or even destroy. Yeah. And I, I mean, I have done research with women as they've come out where they're sort of forced to make the choice between uh, child care or or getting involved in, you know, criminal offenses again. And so it's, you know, uh, somebody might be stringing together two and three part time jobs uh, to try to pay the rent and try to pay daycare, but they they still can't, uh, n- you know, make it in in a budgetary sense. So they're still ultimately in the hole. And I, I've literally been talking to women who've said, you know, does it make sense for me not to not to get involved in different kinds of street related hustles? Because if I did that, I could be with my kid. You know, I'm with my kids. I don't have to worry about another caregiver, and I'm making my rent. Of course, the risk that they always run is is uh, risks around safety, obviously, but then risks too about uh, being reincarcerated. Do you get a sense? You talk about you know policy makers being kind of behind the wave. Do you get the sense that people are starting to notice this and that you know? I know a lot of times making changes in policy, it's like cha- it's like moving a battleship. It, it's not something that you can do quickly. Uh, do you at least get the idea that people are listening and understanding the, the the problem and and at least trying to look for solutions or be open to solution ideas? Yes, I think for the first time in my twenty plus career, you know, doing work on gender and incarceration, I think there's been some real progress. I think there's a, a much greater willingness on the part of the general public to to start thinking about some of these issues and asking. Why are there so many women in prison, uh, given that the nature of their crimes tends not to be as serious or as violent? I also think that there is a, a recognition, albeit a, it's come slower than I would have liked, but a recognition on the part of policymakers. And, you know, in Philadelphia, we have something called the Incarcerated Women's Working Group, which is bringing together a, a variety of actors. It, it um, includes ACLU Pennsylvania and includes my organization, the Philadelphia Justice Project for Women and Girls. Pennsylvania Prison Society, uh, Pennsylvania Institutional Law Project, Women's Law Project, as well as uh, women who are formerly incarcerated. And what we're trying to do is really have a seat at that table to think about 
what it is that women need and how we can we can find resources as well as sort of uh, deal with policy related issues that are, you know, potentially inadvertently driving this thing. I don't want to put this question like there's an easy fix, like that, you know, oh, if we just did X, everything would be great. But give me one or two ideas that you think would be critical to really helping address the problem here. Are there a couple of top line things that would make significant headway in in kind of writing things? I mean, the, the, the first response that I'm going to give you is that there's no reason that we need to have so many women in prison. You know, so if we go back to the the numbers in the 1980s for the country, there was like 12,000 women in prison in 1980. Um, fast forward, there's over 100,000 more women in our nation's prisons than there were, you know, a couple decades ago. But nothing about women's crime participation has changed. So I, so you know, we're not talking about a situation here where there's suddenly been. Uh, you know, a crime wave among women or a, or a new willingness to become violent, which, by the way, when I was in grad school uh, and, and the number of women were increasing in prison, I, I did have a research study where that's exactly what I was looking at. It was sort of like, has feminism uh, come to the streets? Are women uh, more criminally involved? And the, the answer really was no. So it actually does no harm and to release significant numbers of women in fact, it actually improves things uh, on a community front in terms of, of caregiving. So I think that the first thing that we need to do is figure out how to get out as many women from prison as we possibly can. This is something that Oklahoma just did within the last two years. Uh, the single greatest number of uh, incarcerated people who were released at any one time happened in Oklahoma. They released over 500 women. I think we need to be thinking um, on a on a big scale that way in Pennsylvania as well. And uh, a sort of secondary issue is the issue of housing. Women need to have access to safe uh, housing for themselves and for their children. It would eliminate so many problems. It would allow so many families to get back on their feet. And then connected to that, obviously, is access to services, because a lot of what is also driving this is just women's vulnerability to poverty and women's vulnerability to violence, uh, you know, violence on the street, violence vis-a-vis, you know, men who are in their lives. Um, and so addressing those issues, I think, is is going to really, really, really uh, change the landscape for a lot of women in Pennsylvania. As an aside, Oklahoma, you mentioned, not exactly a hotbed of progressive politics is Oklahoma. I mean, as much as you can, and I don't want to put you on the spot here, but how did we get something like that to happen in Oklahoma? Well, Oklahoma is an interesting state. Um, you know, for for social scientists, it's it's not considered a bellwether state uh, when it comes to understanding incarceration. Um, those bellwether states are, you know, California, Florida, Pennsylvania. But actually, for somebody that studies uh, the incarceration of women, Oklahoma is a bellwether in that since the drug war, it has uh, enjoyed, so to speak, uh, the status of as having the highest rate of women's incarceration anywhere in the world. Um, Oklahoma incarcerates more women than any other state uh, by really significant margins. It became an issue in Oklahoma, um, largely driven by a, a conservative politics that was looking exactly at this data. You know, uh, how much does it cost to lock women up 
relative to the sort of threat to public safety that they pose? And the answer to that is is pretty damning in the sense that it costs a lot and you get very little in return. They're not a threat to public safety. Uh, it would be infinitely cheaper uh, to have community-based uh, program programming that would allow people to address, you know, issues around substance abuse or poverty or, um, you know, lack of, of job training. And so uh, really in Oklahoma, it, it is a, a conservative um, move <laughs> to, to, to say, listen, we have to take fiscal responsibility for this. And this is precisely not a population that uh, sort of deserves the amount of money that we're, we're spending to, to lock, lock them up. To that point, you talk about it being a bellwether. Have other, has that had ripple effects with other states that they've looked at that and said, well, wait a minute, even if we're looking at it from different sides of the lens, uh, maybe we should really dig into what's going on here. Well, that was actually something that California several years ago uh, was also working toward. Um, California lost a really significant Supreme Court decision, Brown versus Plata, in which the Supreme Court said that California needed to drastically reduce the number of people who were in prison. And so one of the, and they had to think creatively about how they were going to do that. Uh, And so one of the first creative proposals was to release, um, and it was really targeting mothers. Uh, Of course, there's going to be an equal treatment uh, challenge to it pretty quickly. Um, But, but one of the earliest things was, all right, you know, we could probably reduce there's 9,000 women in California prisons. We could probably take 5,000 women and release them. And so they created these criteria around, um, you know, nonviolent offender, I think within like two years or maybe 60 months of release, uh, primary caregiver to children under the age of 18. And so they were going to fast track these cases. Now, unfortunately, what happens in California is that that effort almost immediately is undermined. Uh, so they they actually put women, they closed down the one women's prison, converted into a men's prison, um, but very quickly end up uh, sending women to a private prison facility that is run by a private prison provider named the Geo Group. Um, and it, really the Geo Group got in there and said, uh, oh, we think we can offer a, a, a prison that does it, you know, a sort of boutique prison that does it all, that, that provides uh, job training and drug treatment. It meant that women weren't getting out of prison. It meant that, that California just uh, took the money that they were going to save and, and gave it to a, a private prison company. Well, that's depressing. Um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about four women that are getting out or people. Let's start. I've heard a lot of talk in general about kind of a push to, to offer more services, make sure people have a better chance of landing on their feet once they are released from incarceration. Uh, talk a little bit about what's the landscape overall for these types of programs and how effective are they? It's really in Pennsylvania, it's really a patchwork. Uh, so some jurisdictions have more programming than other jurisdictions and, and some jurisdictions have literally nothing. Uh, you, you come out and, and you're back on the street, which, again, puts women in really precarious situations because it means that they're either you know, sort of recruited into the same uh, oftentimes drug trafficking networks or sex trafficking networks that they that might have, uh, you know, started the problem in the first place, or they're back into relationships that were problematic or abusive 
you know, across a range of, of issues. In jurisdictions that have more services, housing, for example, Philadelphia doesn't have a lot of services, but it has more than um, center county. Housing remains the, the number one issue for women who are coming out, having safe housing. And those wait lists are very, very long. I know women who've been out for a couple of years who still have not heard about housing. And then in terms of, of programming itself, drug treatment programming, uh, job training, those can be very effective. The uh, drug treatment modalities can vary pretty considerably. And I think that this is something that all of us need to be asking and scrutinizing uh, to look at what services are posting uh, sort of better success rates than other services, because um, you know some of the programs are run by nonprofits, some programs are run by uh, private prison companies uh, that have contracts with the state, and um, and so when I have talked to women uh, about their experiences in different kinds of, for example, drug treatment programs those experiences uh, range considerably. And so some people are just sort of, you know, checking into a facility during the day or or during the evening. um, And then during the day really are not, you know, have a lot of unstructured time where they feel like they should be getting programming and they're not. And in other cases, there there really is a much more concerted effort to deal with uh, trauma and gender specific needs and issues around family and relationships, as well as job training and, and substance abuse. Is there becoming more, you know, kind of the the question I asked you earlier, are people becoming cognizant that that changes need to be made? Is there, are people becoming cognizant when it comes to these programs to help people transition back to regular life that there needs to be, you know, programs tailored specifically for women and, you know, as primary caregivers and stuff like that, or is most of the thought that, Here's the program, Ben, you know, figure it out on your own. I think certainly the programs that I've studied, I think there has been more lip service to gender than there has been really thinking about how to structure the program in a way that meaningfully responds to the kind of crises that women find themselves uh, confronted with, particularly women who are, you know, impoverished or on the on the edges of uh, economic instability. And, and that's because a lot of drug treatment programs and other kinds of reentry programs have been, uh, you know, developed for men. And, and that's kind of the boilerplate and, and it's understandable. Uh, I think we need to, to do more in terms of thinking about what, what women specifically need and how their needs may uh, differ from men as they get out on the street. Certainly there would be areas of overlap, but, but again, there's areas that are, uh, gender specific as well. And, and um, I think it's important that policymakers be looking at that when they're evaluating who they're going to give a contract to in their jurisdiction. As someone who lives this every day, deals with people that, you know, are working to get out of prison that have just gotten out of prison overall, are you heartened in the direction we're trending? Are you uh, alarmed? You know, I'm sure it is a steady slog no matter what, but do do you think we're starting to get it overall as a society when it comes to incarceration? Uh, I have a two-part answer to that. First part, I think that we as a society are starting to get it in that we realize that we have tried to, you know, sort of incarcerate our way out of a variety of social problems, um, of which crime is just one. 
but I'll, you know, a lot of it has to do with poverty. A lot of it has to do with mental health and, uh, you know, substance abuse and addiction. So I think that broadly speaking, and it's the one bright spot in American politics, right? It's, it's, um, you know, across the political divide, Americans can agree that mass incarceration is a problem and that we need uh, to think of solutions other than sending somebody to a congregate facility for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, so that is a bright light. I am right now in the short term, extremely concerned with what's happening because our jails and prisons are really in a state of crisis. And it's a crisis that has just been exacerbated by the pandemic. And so what prison facilities and particularly jail facilities have done is to lock people down, really the sort of equivalent of solitary confinement. And in some of those facilities, that has been ongoing since the start of the pandemic. And so what that has, at the same time, there's been a, a, you know, a sort of disappearance of services, mental health services, job training, education programs, all of those things um, that help people navigate a prison sentence disappear. And then you go into the sort of most restrictive kind of custody that exists. And so the jails in particular are releasing people who have undergone severe mental health trauma over the course of the pandemic. And we're seeing that, I mean, just even viscerally um, in Philadelphia, we're seeing it play out in the streets and it's playing out in the streets with respect to to mental health issues. It's playing out in the streets with respect to substance abuse. Uh, And then of course, uh, you know, we have uh, really serious problems with violence and with shootings in the city. And I think um, certainly not all of that, uh, but some of it can be traced immediately back to to a crisis that's happening in a lot of correctional facilities. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. <laughs>